Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa, your African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Kahisho Sakatelo. In studio with me today is Amanda Machaka, Jolani Tulo, and Fikile Lengwati. The top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour Concerns over the plight of South Sudanese refugees, DRC Electoral Commission completes voter registration, and Zimbabwe's new government urged to respect media freedom. In your economics news, South Africa's power utility ESCOM vows to turn things around. And in your sports, South Africa ready for Hamilton 7's rugby tournament. But first, Amanda Machaka with your news. Thank you, Kahisho. Good morning. Hundreds of people are reported to have been arrested in northern Ethiopia. They were detained after days of anti-government protests, which began when the security forces shot dead five people at Christian Festival. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. Residents of a number of northern towns say the security forces have been going from house to house arresting people. In the town of Waldea, they say three busloads of people have been taken away. The arrests followed days of violent anti-government protests in at least four towns. Last month, the authorities announced the release of thousands of political activists, the aim to quell the nearly three years of opposition protests. The new wave of arrests is likely to raise doubts about the government's commitment to reconciliation. At least 10 people have died and dozens others are still missing after a boat carrying about 90 migrants capsized in the Mediterranean off the coast of Libya. The BBC's Ronada Jouad has more. Most of the bodies that washed up on a beach in Libya's coastal city of Zwara are nationals of Pakistan. A statement on the Facebook page of the city's security directorate says the dead included a Libyan woman. There were three survivors that made it to shore. Two of them were also Libyan. It's not clear when the boat took off, but officials say it capsized because it was overloaded with about 90 people. Namibian President Hagi Gengob has sacked two senior government ministers who challenged him during the ruling party's last leadership contest. He dismissed Minister of Home Affairs Pendukeni Levula Itana and Youth Affairs Minister Jerry Ekanjo, both of whom have served in government since Namibia's independence in 1990. Ekanjo ran against Gengob for the presidency of the ruling Swapo party during the November party vote with Levula Itana as his running mate. They lost the vote to the president's camp. Gengob has, since the Congress, cemented his control in the party, where his close allies also won three top positions. The eldest son of the late Cuban President Fidel Castro has committed suicide. He was 68 years old. According to state media, Fidel Castro Diaz Balad had been treated by doctors for several months due to deep depression. Fidel Jr. helped Asha in the development of a nuclear power program in the communist-ruled country as he was a scientist who trained in the former Soviet Union. At the time of his death, he was vice president of the country's Academy of Sciences. His famous father Father died in 2016 after leading Cuba from 1959 to 2008. The BBC's Will Grant reports. A 68-year-old nuclear physicist, Fidel Ángel Castro Díaz Balat, played no significant political role in Cuba and was certainly never in the running to follow his father or his uncle, President Raúl Castro, into leading the country. As much as the death itself may shock ordinary Cubans, it is those unexpected circumstances which will perhaps most catch them by surprise. As the personal lives of members of the Castro family are generally kept away from the public eye, almost no one will have known he suffered mental health issues prior to the announcement of his death. 
And finally, Rihanna has used her star power to urge key governments to commit to ensuring education of the world's poorest as she takes part in an international conference in Senegal. The chart-topping singer arrived in the capital, Dakar, where she will join the Global Partnership for Education talks later in the day, co-hosted by Senegalese President Merki Sall and French leader Emmanuel Macron. Rihanna, the fourth most followed person on Twitter with 86 million followers, took to social media to urge Macron, British Prime Minister Theresa May and Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to ensure specific funding levels for education. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, amuka na unai. Thank you, Amanda. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, on Thursday made a funding appeal of $3.2 billion to support refugees fleeing the South Sudan crisis. At least 2.5 million South Sudanese have fled their homes to neighboring countries, while another 2 million are displaced within the country. The conflict in South Sudan is now in its fifth year. Sarah Kimani has more. South Sudan faces the double catastrophe of insecurity and hunger. 2.5 million people have sought refuge across the borders, while inside the country, 7 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. Mark Lowock is the emergency relief coordinator for South Sudan. We're seeking $3.2 billion from the international community this year, including $1.7 billion for the humanitarian uh, response plan. Well, Filippo Grandi is the High Commissioner for UNHCR. The burden is huge in terms of resources, in terms of cost, in terms of environment, and that's why we need to help. There are fears that the number of refugees will hit the 3 million mark by the end of this year. Previous peace agreements have been violated within hours of signing. The people of South Sudan ever more hopeless, according to Grandi. That there is a great fatigue for this war in the region and the great desire uh, to solve it and to come to a solution. The hope is this time the leaders will commit to saving the world's youngest nation from the brink of total collapse. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. The UN peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUSCO, says talks are underway regarding possible renewal of its mandate ending next month. Last week, President Joseph Kabila told a press conference in the capital, Kinshasa, that MONUSCO had failed to neutralize armed groups in the country. But the UN mission has refuted those claims. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. It's now more than 17 years since the UN peacekeeping mission, well known as MONUSCO, was deployed in different areas here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The mission has a one-year mandate and this has always been renewed every March end. The UN Security Council defines a new mandate every time when it decides it's in renewal, but in general, the mission's mandate is to protect civilians. 
Discussions are underway to try and renew MONUSCOM mandate as there are still only two months remaining. That's indeed what the UN mission spokesperson Florence Marshall said. There are a lot of talks for the time being regarding the renewal of the mandate. As you know, peacekeeping operations derive the mandate from the Security Council of the United Nations. This is the Security Council who decides whether we have to establish a peacekeeping mission or not, and then they decide the mandate, and then they decide the termination of the mandate and of the existence of peacekeeping operation. A new resolution draft has to be discussed within the UN Security Council before deciding whether MONUSCO's mandate will be renewed or not. And indeed, a Security Council delegation has met with both MONUSCO and these countries' authorities here last week. The delegation has to draft a resolution and hand it for discussion before any decision. The UN mission spokesperson Florence Marshall told the Channel Africa MONUSCO carries on implementing its current mandate for the time being. Some representatives of some permanent members of the Security Council were in the Democratic Republic of the Congo last week in order to have meetings and to exchange views both with MONUSCO and with Congolese authority. So now they are back to New York and I guess they will start working on the draft of the new resolution. And then the draft will be discussed among the members of the Security Council and then it will be adopted or not. We will get our new roadmap and as we do for the time being, we will keep on implementing the mandate given to us by the Security Council. According to the current mandate, the UN mission here has been given authorization by the Security Council to neutralize all the negative forces meaning any armed group operating in this country. But the DRC president has expressed the big disappointment as far as the UN mission is concerned. Last week, President Joseph Kabila told the press conference here, MONUSCO has never succeeded to neutralize any single armed group here. We have always asked our friends of MONUSCO to tell us only a single armed group they have already succeeded to neutralize, to eradicate, not even one. A kind of big disappointment, eh? I then asked to the UN spokesperson Florence Marshall how does she react to President Kabila's statement. I will not react directly uh, to the statement of uh, President Kabila. It's uh, the president of our host country, so I will not react directly. But what I can say again is that we are here in the DRC in agreement with the government of, of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to implement the mandate given to us by resolution of the Security Council of the United Nations. It means that uh, we work on the protection of civilians on one side and on the implementation of political agreement on the other hand. So we do it on a daily basis together with the Congolese authority for the benefit of the Congolese population. We are in the DRC to help Congolese people to get peace and sustainable development. The Democratic Republic of Congo is still facing serious insecurity situation. All this happens only a few weeks after 14 UN peacekeepers were killed in Beni in the eastern DRC during an attack by alleged Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces well known as ADF. Jean-Noël Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Meanwhile, the Democratic Republic of Congo's Electoral Commission has completed the voter registration process for a long-delayed election scheduled for December 23. The Independent National Electoral Commission says it has registered more than 46 million voters who are now expected to cast their votes for the combined presidential, national and provincial parliamentary elections. Jean-Noël Bamueza once again. It's only after registration has been completed in the Kasai provinces in the Central Democratic Republic of Congo that the Independent National Electoral Commission officially concluded the process on Wednesday. The voter registration process has been concluded after the commission registered a total of 46,021,454 voters. This is indeed 12% more than expected according to the commission's chairman. 
Ete press conference here in Kinshasa, Cornel Nanga told the journalist that the big job has been done as far as registration is concerned, and only the Congolese diaspora is still needed. Registration for them is scheduled to start in July. Cornel Nanga said everything is being done according to the electoral calendar. According to the electoral calendar released last November, January 31st is the end of voter identification and registration in the different electoral areas of Kasai. That's the last step for the operation. Meanwhile, opposition members are still not convinced and believe President Joseph Kabila is not ready to let elections be held here in the DRC, although the voter registration process has been finished. According to this opponent, who's the lead of the citizen engagement for development, Martin Fayulu, President Kabila has instructed Cornel Nanga to release an impossible calendar just to let people come down, but no election will be held in December. On uh, December 23rd, there will not be election. Kabila has imposed many constraints on the calendar. Everybody knows that Mr. Kabila told Mr. Nanga to release that calendar to reduce the pressure inside and outside. We are seeing ourselves far away from that calendar. We are not insisting to have election on December 23rd. No, we are not saying because the framework to use for the election was the accord. That accord has ended since December 31st, 2017. Meanwhile, President Joseph Kabila has denied sticking to power and said everything is being done according to a roadmap, but really, opposition, civil society, and the Catholic Church do not trust him. That's indeed the reason why demonstrations have been organized these last weeks, and different sources have said more demonstrations are still expected to demand the December 31st agreement to be implemented and force President Kabila to step down. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Zimbabwean media houses have received one million US dollars of election reporting support from the International Media Support, EU, and the, no- and the Norway Foreign Ministry ahead of the 2018 polls. Through the support, a grouping of various media rights organizations falling under the Media Alliance of Zimbabwe launched an election program under the theme Support to Media on Governance and Electoral Matters in Zimbabwe. During the launch in the capital Harare, the EU urged President Emerson Nangagwa's government to respect media freedoms during this year's polls. Simon Muchemwa from Harare. A few months before the 2018 elections on Thursday and in the capital Harare, Media Alliance of Zimbabwe, MAZ, received nearly 1 million US dollars election support from key partners. With aid from the international media support, European Union, EU, and knowing foreign ministry, Media Alliance of Zimbabwe, MAZ, launched a media and elections program running under the theme Support to Media on Governance and Electoral Matters in Zimbabwe. Although the country's media faces several challenges such as restrictive media laws and political violence during elections, the EU ambassador Philippe Van Dem urged the country to relax laws ahead of the elections this year. We have technological means today to pass these messages and I would like to appeal to the government to reconsider the possibility of opening the waves, the radio waves, to community radios, which are such a powerful instrument throughout Africa for outreaching on development issues in the respective countries. The media have notably also been constrained in the watchdog function by harsh economic conditions and general lack of professional skills and the ontological standards, but also sometimes by threats from politicians or other wealthy or well-connected individuals 
under investigation. During the media elections program launch, MAS director Patience Zirima outlined challenges the media face in the country each time there's an election. This project is being undertaken by 10 partners of the Media Alliance of Zimbabwe with support from the EU delegation and IMS. The main aim of the media and elections program will be to contribute towards free and fair elections where media rights, freedom of expression and information are guaranteed and all citizens are free to participate. The project will include a variety of activities by partners that include training and capacity strengthen of journalists, citizen journalists and editors on election-related matters, information production, dissemination and creation of platforms for distribution of election content, and media monitoring, analysis and fact-checking of election reports among other activities. While traditional media is threatened with citizen journalism, making it hard to prove the credibility of certain news, Zimbabwean acting media minister Simon Kayamoyo promised the laws will be relaxed, paving way for a free, fair and credible election. At policy level, the Ministry of Information, Media and Broadcasting Services is in the process of aligning the two pieces of media legislation that fall within its purview, that is the access to information and protection of Privacy Act, AIPA, and the Broadcasting Services Act, BSA, we must align this with the Constitution, our new Constitution, and we are seriously working to ensure that this is accomplished. Minister Moyo added, The ministry is also alive. The fact that there are other laws that affect the media and continues to engage with other government stakeholders to ensure that we create a more favorable working environment for the media to operate. There are other challenges that are of concern to the media industry, such as the safety of journalists, political polarization, partisan journalism, publishing falsehoods, decline in training standards, gender discrimination, and the reports of rampant corruption in the sector. From year 2000, when the main opposition movement for democratic change, MDC, started contesting in elections, the country has witnessed increased reports of political violence against opposition activists and media practitioners. On the 9th of March 2015, journalist Itai Zamara was abducted by unknown assailants and is yet to be accounted for. In 2008, veteran journalist Justina Mkoko was also abducted and was only found in a police station three months later. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Channel Africa. Kulitranjoy Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, has called on the judiciary to speed up proceedings in the President Jacob Zuma fraud and corruption case. The DA believes this will assist them to speedily pay back $2.5 million in legal costs this matter has cost the taxpayers for almost a decade in case he loses the case. This reaction comes after President Jacob Zuma's lawyers confirmed that their client has met has met the National Prosecuting Authority's deadline of Wednesday night and submitted representations on why he should not be prosecuted for fraud and corruption. Fanuel Schumer has more. President Jacob Zuma's lawyers say their representations were prepared and submitted on Wednesday night. The representations were initially supposed to be submitted in November 2017. 
but the National Director of Public Prosecutions, Sean Abrahams, extended the deadline to January the 31st, 2018. A ruling of the Supreme Court of Appeal dismissed the application of Zuma and the NPA to appeal a court ruling that the decision of the then NPA boss Mokote Dimsem to drop the corruption charges against him was irrational. Abrahams has given a team of senior prosecutors two weeks in which to consider Zuma's representations. Thereafter, he will decide whether to proceed with charging Zuma or not. DA's James Self says they have requested to see the physical copies of the representations. And I anticipate that his uh, representations will once more be an attempt to either delay or to have the charges dropped. Um, we have made application to the uh, National Director for Public Prosecutions to uh, have sight uh, of those representations. We believe that we have a legal right to them because we were the party that took uh, the president to court. Dirk Kutzem, a professor of political science at UNISAM, says the NPA has few steps to consider before it finally takes the matter to court. First of all, they have been instructed by the Supreme Court of Appeal to re-look at the charges that were withdrawn in 2009. Uh, They gave this opportunity to President Zuma to make his personal presentation. And now they have the two weeks to to finalize that and then make a final recommendation. Political analyst Tiniko Malulekem says President Zuma's last-minute submission of representations clearly shows his desperate attempts to stay out of jail. Maluleke says despite attempts to try clear his name, Zuma is gradually becoming an isolated man. Well, I think pressure is mounting on him. You remember that um, the court has already decided that the charges have to be reinstated. And uh, so he is no longer in the situation where there are no charges facing him. Both him and the NPA have to comply with the decision of the court. And so I think what you see is a president under tremendous pressure on several fronts. And he had to make this submission. NPA says the latest developments will not pressure them to prosecute the president. NPA spokesperson Luvuyo Mfagu says all will be conducted within the confines of the law. We are not populists. We will never succumb to any public pressure. When a decision is taken, it's taken in line with our policy directives, due process within the confines of the rule of law. The NPA will always take the right decisions, uh, will not be influenced by public sentiment, including politics. We do not factor in politics. President Zuma lost his appeal against a high court ruling that found the NPA's decision to drop charges against him in 2009 was irrational. Fanuel Schumer, Pretorium. This is Channel Africa. You can still look forward to your economics news as well as your sporting headlines. Um, but before that, we will have Amanda uh, in a short while bringing you your economics news. Please do uh, conversate with us. Let us know your thoughts about these and other stories. You can catch us on our website, www channelafrica.co.za here you can stream us live as well you can also find us on the dstv's audio uh, bouquet channel 802 we are also on um on the frequency 7230 uh 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa and 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to west africa Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwa Nangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 Central African time and as promised, Amanda Machaka standing by with your headlines. Thank you, Kahisho. Good morning. In the headlines, hundreds of people have been arrested in northern Ethiopia following anti-government protests. Ten people killed and 90 missing after a boat carrying about 90 migrants capsized in the Mediterranean off the coast of Libya. And the UN Refugee Agency appeals for funding of 3.2 billion US dollars to support refugees fleeing the South Sudan crisis. Details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. You are still tuned into Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. The South African Parliament has decided to seek legal opinion regarding the best mechanisms to impeach a sitting president in accordance with Section 89 of the Constitution. This comes after the Rules Committee for the National Assembly could not agree on the two draft proposals provided by the subcommittee. The subcommittee had proposed the establishment of a committee of all political parties being represented equally. The second option is for the appointment of a panel of retired judges to investigate if the president has indeed violated the constitution or the law. In December, the Constitutional Court ordered Parliament to introduce proper mechanisms for the removal of a sitting president. Abongwe Kubukana has more. The committee has reached a stalemate after members could not agree on the best possible mechanism that should oversee the fact-finding mission to determine if the president has violated the constitution or the law. The EFF is pushing for a panel of retired judges to take the task. In its argument, it believes that retired judges cannot be accused of being biased. EFF MP Dr. Mwiseni Lozi was at pain insisting that the committee should at all times not lose sight of the court judgment in its deliberation. What we are looking at now as a proposal is, is really an ad hoc committee. You have, you have gone to refashion an ad hoc committee, come back to us when the court said it's not adequate, basing it on the rules when the court said within the rules you could not conceive of the implementation of the impeachment section in the Constitution. While the ANC says it is amenable to the EFF proposal, however, it was adamant that the same judgment was very clear in its logic that the impeachment of a sitting president can only be instituted by the National Assembly. ANC Chief Whip Jackson Mtembo explained the party's position. You need members of parliament to remove a sitting president. It's constitutional. You, you, you cannot have other people other than members of parliament. And these members of parliament can come in at some stage with a process that has been started by other people, no matter what you call them. These members of parliament must be there and put a report before parliament, and that report, of course, guided by the panel of experts, the IFP has always opposed the idea of what it calls outsourcing the work of parliament to outsiders in the process of removing a president. In principle, according to the IFP MP Naren Singh, the party agrees with the proposal of the establishment of a committee consisted of members of parliament from various political parties. And there is no doubt that we have to uh, respect what the court has said, the majority judgment in the court, and act upon it. Uh, what Mr. Mdagana has said, Honorable Speaker, we in principle agree with because it uh, marks and paves the way forward for at least for us to have a process which we didn't have before to deal with what happens when Section 89 is being put into practice. 
The DA says there is a huge dilemma in this matter because even the experts can be biased at times. DA Chief Whip John Steinhazen says some due diligence in choosing the best option is required. We accept that we shouldn't have just politicians sitting in on this thing because we all carry our inherent bias. Not that external people do not have their own inherent biases. I think we mustn't regard retired judges and experts as the panacea because they're not. We all have an inherent bias and we will all have our own perspective of, of um, what shade of black the phone may be. At last it was decided that the matter should be taken to the party caucuses and legal opinion must be requested before a final draft is concluded. The Speaker of the National Assembly, Balegambete, says there is a general agreement on some of the issues in this process. This report must be taken to party caucuses while it is also being enriched through consulting a constitutional lawyer. Let's agree to find such uh, assistance and expertise because it can only help us enrich our process. The Rules Committee must then meet after SONA with a view to finalize. U.S. President Donald Trump's White House could defy its top law enforcement agency if it proceeds to release a secret Republican memo alleging FBI bias in its investigations of the president. A statement from the FBI pushed back at the White Re- at the House Republican memo purporting to show that the Justice Department, along with the FBI, abused their authority in obtaining a warrant to spy on a former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor. The statement from the Trump from the Trump uh, appointed FBI director Christopher Wray expressed grave concerns about material omissions of fact that fundamentally impact the memo's accuracy. Here's Sherwin Bryce Peace with the report. This is the broad scenario. House Republicans believe the memo relays damning evidence gathered during their investigation into Russian meddling in the election and possible collusion with the Trump campaign. House Democrats called its contents a cherry-picking distraction aimed at diverting attention and protecting the president. But the memo's release seems increasingly likely after the president was caught on a hot mic telling lawmakers he'd 100% release the memo despite his own Justice Department warning that the document is misleading and could compromise national security. Release the memo. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. 100%. Can you imagine? Yes, sir. The Republican-led Intelligence Committee voted along party lines to release the memo earlier this week, allowing the president five days to stop its release for national security concerns. Democrats have fiercely opposed the memo's release, as Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, explains. This is not about the facts. This is about a narrative that the chairman wants to put out, a misleading narrative, uh, to undermine the FBI, undermine the department, and ultimately undermine Bob Mueller. And, of course, the danger in all of this, besides the obvious one of politicizing the intelligence process, uh, is that it send a message to the White House that he can fire Rod Rosenstein or he can fire Bob Mueller, and there are GOP members who are so vested uh, in his presidency that they will roll over. Uh, and that, that will cause a constitutional crisis if that's the message he takes from this. The memo is said to accuse the FBI and Justice Department of misleading a foreign intelligence surveillance court judge last year to extend an eavesdropping warrant against Trump campaign advisor Carter Page, but that they failed to inform the judge that information used to justify the warrant included portions of a dossier of Trump-Russia contacts that were part of opposition research paid for by Democrats. However, the memo apparently does not include the fact that the request also relied on classified information that confirmed the dossier's research. Democrats believe this is an attempt to undermine the Russia probe led by the special counsel. If Bob Mueller gets too close to the president, if Bob Mueller looks at the money laundering issue and that's too threatening to the president, uh, there's no telling what this president will do. Um, What I'm more worried about at the moment is that he fires Rod Rosenstein that he knows the blowback that would accompany firing the special counsel, so he fires Rod Rosenstein, puts in his own person, who then becomes 
Bob Mueller's boss and can say to Bob Mueller, you can't look into this, you can't look into that, you need to end your investigation here. The chairman of the House Committee, Republican Devin Nunes, who has pushed for the memo's release, believes the objections of the FBI are spurious and accused the FBI and Justice Department of making material omissions to the courts and Congress, fueling the narrative that law enforcement agencies manipulated the courts against the Trump campaign. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. Environmental activists say the mainstream media in Brazil has led to the brutal mass killings of howler monkeys. Local residents have begun preemptively killing monkeys, incorrectly assuming that they help spread yellow fever. A yellow fever outbreak is tearing through Brazil, leaving thousands dead. Dr. Julio Cesar Bicar Marquez from the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio Grande do Sul says a lot of monkeys that were killed because of the suspicion were found to be negative of the yellow fever virus. He spoke to Wandi Lecalipa. Well, the fact is that the Brazilians or the American monkeys, they are not resistant to the yellow fever virus as the African monkeys. The disease came to the Americas. It was brought by humans, together with the mosquito Aedes aegypti, that is the main factor in the urban cycle of the disease. And our monkeys did not evolve, as the African ones, in contact with the virus. And so they do not have a coevolutionary time as the African have. And among the American monkeys, howler monkeys are the most sensitive to the virus. Our estimate is that about 80% of the monkeys that are infected by the virus, they die in about a week. So they're very sensitive. And because of this sensitivity, they are also very important sentinels of the circulation of the virus. And what is happening is that the media was delivering, it's still delivering, but uh, was more some weeks or months ago. The media was delivering here get a relationship between the disease that is killing people too. We have more than 300 people dead of yellow fever in the last year and a half, something like that, in an outbreak that is happening in the extra-Amazonian region here in Brazil, where the vaccination, the immunization of people is lower than it is in the Amazon, where the virus is already considered endemic. And so there people do not have normally problems with yellow fever because they are immunized. And monkeys also probably are more resistant because the virus is circulating for probably more than a century or two centuries already in this region. And it's always there. We know that in the Amazon, the virus is always there. In the regions south of the Amazon, the virus isn't here almost never. We only have some periodic outbreaks caused by the virus coming almost certainly with unvaccinated people that go there and that brings the virus to this extra Amazonian regions in south and southeastern and central Brazil. And so among the tropical primates, the American primates, howler monkeys are the most sensitive. And when the media was delivering a close relationship and just saying the monkeys are dying, the yellow fever is here, people was understanding that if they killed the monkeys, the yellow fever would be gone. And this is what is happening in many places in Brazil. This media fear-mongering, how has it impacted on the howler monkeys? Yeah, well, I have a campaign, the Protect Our Guardian Angel campaign. It's not only for howlers, but for primates or monkeys in general. And now we have many people in different places in the country trying to deliver the right message and even some mass media channels that were delivering unintentionally bad messages. They are now improving the message that they are delivering, saying the monkeys are our friends, our major allies in the combat of the disease. You cannot, you should not kill them because this is bad. We want to know where the virus is, and so we can't immunize the right people that needs to be immunized. And so the media is now trying to help, at least some part of the media, that we can see that the mass media 
channels, TV channels especially. But now it's perhaps too late because most people have already understood the wrong message. And then in the state of Rio de Janeiro, for example, they received about uh, 120 animals that were it's 8.45 Central African time. Cholani Tulo standing by with your economics news. Thank you, Kakisho. Good morning. All of the mine workers who were trapped at the Sibanye Beatrix mine in South Africa's Free State province have now been rescued. The last seven miners were brought safely to the surface earlier this morning. Over 900 mine workers were trapped underground following a power outage at four shafts caused by a violent storm on Wednesday night. President of Mining Union AMCO Joseph Matunjwa has slammed mine management for the lack of power delaying the rescue. We've been saying that these mines are not investing in prevention. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because they pay low wage. So to get a high quality of safety measures is too expensive for them. So there's no investment when it comes to prevention. Hence, there's no contingency plan. There's no generators. If there were generators, they're not in a working condition. They had to go to other mines, Harmony, to go and borrow generators. These managers or these mines are pushing production in the extent of the lives of the workers. Another mine workers union, NUMSA, has called for the mine to remain shut until worker safety can be guaranteed. NUMSA says the latest incident is further proof that mines pursue profits before the safety of workers. The union says Beatrix Mine should remain shut pending a full investigation. The acting group CEO of South Africa's passenger rail agency, Prasa Nsizwa Mulepo, says Prasa will soon introduce new trains manufactured in South Africa. He was speaking at a media briefing in Durban in the KwaZulu-Natal province following incidents in which two passenger trains were set alight in the city this week. There was an outcry during the past few years over Spanish locomotives ordered through an irregular tender that failed to meet Prasa's high specifications. Mulepo says the new trains will have advanced technology to help protect and communicate with commuters. We have a factory for new trains. 20 train sets that were manufactured in Brazil that have been delivered. They are currently running. The infrastructure is being revitalized throughout the country to prepare for the deployment of the new trains across the country. As I speak to you last week on Thursday, we visited the factory manufactured in South Africa by South African with a local content of more than 67%. That means the transfer of technology, it means skills development, Japan's financial regulator has conducted a spot inspection on CoinCheck Inc. to protect uh, users. This comes as authorities try to pin down how hackers who stole what 530 million US dollars of digital money from the Tokyo-based cryptocurrency exchange. Last week's theft, one of the world's biggest cyber heists, highlighted the vulnerabilities in trading an asset that policymakers are struggling to regulate. The regulator, the Financial Services Agency, earlier this week issued a business improvement order to CoinCheck and said it would investigate all cryptocurrency exchanges in Japan for security gaps following the hack. Finance Minister Taro Aso says the inspection is to ensure protection of users. And finally, Apple has reported a 20 billion US dollar profit in a record-setting quarter. It also says sales of its newest iPhone X smartphone were better than expected. Revenue in the final three months of last year increased 13%, according to the California-based technology giant. Apple chief executive uh, Tim Cook says the iPhone X surpassed expectations and has been the top-selling iPhone every week since it shipped in November. And now let's take a look at the financial indicators. The U.S. dollar is trading at 11.86 to the South African Rand, at 9.41 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.73 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 70 pence to the British Pound and at 80 cents to the Euro. Gold is trading at $1,347 and platinum at $1,002 an ounce. And finally, the price of Brent crude is at $69.85 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jordan Tulo.
Thank you, Jolani. What sporting action can we look forward to? Figil is here to tell us. Okay, so we're looking forward to Springbok 7's coach Neil Powell and uh, his rugby side him and he says that uh, nothing that happened in Sydney and last year in Wellington will have an impact on their performance in the upcoming Hamilton leg of the HSBC World Rugby 7 series. The Blitzbokie are the defending champions of the New Zealand having won in Wellington last year and even though they lost in the final of the Sydney tournament last week, Powell says they will need to start all over again in Hamilton on Saturday. Yeah, that's definitely irrelevant what happened last weekend or last year um, yeah, in, in, in New Zealand when we played in Wellington. I think um, it's going to be important for us to start all over again and, and get a good foundation in that first game against Papua New Guinea like we did in Sydney. Uh, make sure that we, we look after our system, make sure that when we get our opportunities in attack that we use them and that we, that we put points on the board. So, and defensively to look after our system like we did for that first five games in, in, in Sydney. So, um, we'll, we'll be looking for a good start and we know that it, nothing that we did in the past will help us to be successful this weekend so we need to go out there and, and basically make it happen all over again Powell says his team have had enough time to recover this week and have spent time doing some review work from their fallout of losing the final in Sydney and that they are raring to go in Hamilton yeah, I think um, always those first few days try to get the guys recovered and and um, obviously very sore still, so you can only start really preparing from the Wednesday onwards. I think um, give not give them off the first two days, but do a lot of reviews and a bit of um, regeneration, especially in the gym uh, Tuesday, and do a bit of cardio and a bit of weights, and then try to get them on the field to slowly start getting them back, um, the, the blood back into their legs and get them running again. So um, happy with what we've done so far, um, and I think a good balance between still getting out there on the field, but also so um, give the guys enough time to recover for this weekend. And to football news, South Africa's Kaiser Chiefs have received rave reviews from the FIFA and CAF delegations following their visit to the club last month. Officials from the African and World Football Governing Bodies were in the country to conduct a case study, the operational models of Chiefs, as well as Soweto rivals Orlando Pirates. A delegation led by FIFA professional football advisor Andre Potabella and CAF club licensing manager Ahmed Haraz have singled out Chiefs for praise both delegates left impressed with what they saw throughout the club's various structures. And in cricket news, South Africa has uh, lost their first ODI, the One Day International, on home soil in 18 matches when they lost to India by six wickets in the first of six momentum ODIs at the Kingsmead Cricket Ground in Devon last night. Proteas captain Fav Duplessis confessed that his team was outplayed by the better team on the night. Yeah, we didn't bat well today as a batting unit for the second top score to be 30-something uh, or 40. Shows that there wasn't partnerships. And the most basic thing about one-day cricket is you need to give two guys batting together putting some sort of partnership together. Um, I thought the Indian spinners bowled well, but still we should have been better today against them. What it showed tonight is it got a little bit of moisture on and then it just skids on at night, which makes it easier for batting. But generally, if you can put a, a big total on first innings, you could put pressure on the opposition. But because we had a below par score because the ball was just skidding off the deck and even Imran wasn't getting any spin it was just sliding off the deck um, you know chasing five runs and over it was very easy the only way you could get some sort of pressure on the opposition if you could get three or four in that first ten overs uh, and, and we couldn't do that finally the Indian spinner fully utilized the spin and Duplessis believes that the spin was the only difference between the two teams on the night with new batsmen coming in for the spinners, with the ball being a little bit slower, that's when India is at their best, you know, when they can put pressure on you with their spinners. Uh, and, on, and today they did that. So that's why they slowed the game down. They got, they got wickets through the middle period. If you can get wickets through the middle period, you, you will win a lot of one-day games. We couldn't do that. And, and from their point of view, obviously they just try to have a solid start, as you said, nice and tight, make sure that they just get a good start. And then once they did that, they could um, turn it around and put some pressure on the bowlers. So they played well. 
think the reasons why they're bowling so early is because they've got lots of spinners. And they only had the two frontline seamers in their attack today, and then they had Pandya, which is the all-rounder. So generally, you have to bring your spinner on pretty early if, if that's your attack. When we saw the team that they had, we knew that they were going to bowl spin early doors. Obviously, they got another off-spinner as well who can bowl some overs. And then from a batting point of view, quite a few guys hasn't faced the spinners. So it will take one or two games for them to get used to it. Some of the guys play against these guys in the IPL, but not all of them has, has faced them recently. With mystery spin or wrist spin, it takes you one or two games just to get used to the guy's action and their wrist. Then hopefully you get better at playing them. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And it's a wrap from the Africa Rise and Shine team today. Myself, Kakisho Sekatelo, producers Pumozo, Ramagaza and Tutongobeni, our technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you very much and have a blessed weekend. You can, of course, comment about our show. Our, our email is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at RiseShineAfrica or at ChannelAfrica1. Uh, you can also search for Channel Africa on Facebook. Here is Mshika with a song called Payday.
Money, money is in my pocket. 